Julia Torres, and this is another episode of the Book Love Foundation podcast. I am a Denver public schools librarian and language arts teacher. And today I have some very fun guests for you. I'm going to let them introduce themselves, but I'm super excited to talk about all things. So get ready for a wonderful episode. So I'm Namrata Tripathi. I'm the uh, publisher and founder of an imprint called Kokila, which is at Penguin Young Readers. And I'm also Randy's editor on the book, Patron Saints of Nothing. And I am Randy Rebuy. Uh, I'm a high school English teacher in the Bay Area now and the author of Patron Saints of Nothing, as well as After the Shot Drops and an Infinite Number of Parallel Universes. I find myself here with two very important people within the imprint, Kokula Books, <laughs> which I love. Team Kokula is a hashtag. It is a yes. movement. It is phenomenal. Um, one of the things that I wanted to do is for readers and listeners, because we've got some teachers, but we've got some pre-service teachers as well. Lots of people in the book club, in the summer book club this year, are reading Randy's book right now, this week, actually. They're reading Patron, Patron Saints of Nothing to be able to talk about it, to be able to teach it, and to be able to um, use it as book club books. So one of the things that I want you to do is travel back in time and think about what was school like for you um, as readers, as learners? What did you like about it? What was challenging? Um, Randy, would you like to go first? Sure. Uh, it's a blurry time of my life. The older I get, the blurrier it gets. Um, but, you know, I, I remember going through school uh, and not being terribly excited about it. Um, I did pretty well, I think, because I had like a pretty good memory that's kind of leaving me now. But I, I was good at I was good at doing school, but I don't think I ever was like felt particularly inspired uh, or motivated by it. Um, you know, when I think back on like the books that I loved reading when I was a kid, like none of them were books that we read in school. Um, you know, it was stuff like Chronicles of Narnia and Goosebumps, and then like later on like Stephen King and stuff like that. All stuff that uh, you know I just kind of found on my own. And read outside of classes. Um, and as I got older, I think that, that kind of solidified a little bit more, kind of the, you know, school became a lot more about getting the good grades, kind of doing what you need to do to like get into a good college, at least that's the experience of my family. Um, and so just a lot of pressure, um, a lot of a lot of doing things because I was told to do them or expected to do them, not necessarily because uh, you know, I was interested or connected with anything we were reading in school. Um, I honestly couldn't tell you the name of like any book I read in school uh, until the 11th grade <laughs> when I was in the uh, the IB or the International Baccalaureate program. And that was the year that we read. It was essentially like world literature. So it was like Things Fall Apart and Woman Warrior, um, Ceremony, um, all these books that kind of I guess, started to wake me up a little bit more to the world outside of the dead white guy canon. I'm very much like you. I think my favorite books were Piers Anthony. I read B.C. Andrews. I was talking about that with Ebony Elizabeth Thomas earlier this month. Um, and then I really liked Octavia Butler. But a lot of people that I went to school with in that time just didn't know about her. I was lucky because my mom was a librarian. So she could, you know, introduce me to some books that weren't really they weren't going to be taught. She was a big sci-fi fan. She still is. So I read a lot of science fiction. Um, and that's something that I think perhaps is a commonality with most of the educators of color that I know. 
we had to find our reading lives outside mm. of school. What about you, Namracha? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's there's some overlap there in terms of you know finding finding my life as a reader a little bit outside of school. I think like the library was actually pretty clutch in that. I don't really remember the books that I was assigned in class, but I do remember checking out books in the library and really loving them. And like, you know, when I was very little, I mean, I think I was, you know, I, I was a pretty um, like devoted little student. <laughs> I think we all were. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think some of it is like I was self-motivated and, li and liked school, you know, for the most part, and also had that thing of like, you know, I'm the, I'm the, I was a good Indian girl and I would like would um, deliver and achieve as was sort of expected of me. And, and so it's a mix of things where it's sort of like how much of it really comes from within and how much of it is like centuries of sort of conditioning where you feel like you have to mm -hmm. um, perform a certain way. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'll probably be unpacking that for the rest of my life, but, <laughs> um, but with, with reading. Too real. Too real. <laughs> But with reading, I mean, I think I always enjoyed it. And I think it was like a mix of like stuff we read in school, which a lot of times I went to international or American schools because of the way I grew up. My folks were diplomats. And though I'm from India, I moved like every three years to some other, to another country, but often went to like, I would always went to an English medium school. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we lived in Canada, it was public school. And so you'd, it was like, you know, I feel like the books you read in Canada are sort of a mix of like stuff you learn from Amer like from American culture, mm -hmm. some, some sort of Canadian stuff and a little bit of British stuff. Mm -hmm. Being Indian, there was definitely some British influence, and like, and none of those books I really saw myself. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was like outside where my mom would maybe read me like myths from Indian, like Indian myths and, and religious texts, like you know Ramayana, Mahabharata stories from those sort of epics, um, where you start to see your own culture in a way that um, we were the heroes, you know. So I didn't really grow up with that so much. But as a kid, like I love like you know Roald Dahl because that's what I was read. Uh, uh, to you know, as like a elementary school kid, and when I think I was in grade four or something, it was you know a little bit before he had died. I got my entire class to write him a letter, like a fan letter from Pakistan. Really? It was about, really? <laughs> funny, yeah. Kids in Pakistan writing to him. He or his people wrote back. It was incredible, nice. um, and wrote this like very funny poem about how we were lucky that the teacher let let us write to him because when he was our age, the teachers were so strict that you know, whenever the boys misbehaved, the, uh, the teacher would pull the ear off the boys. And so there was a classroom full of one-eared boys and, and ears <laughs> all over the floor. And I was like, that was amazing. So I, I know <laughs> that was my daughter in the back. Pardon yeah. Me. yeah, what did she say? She said, that's cray-cray. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, it was, um, I, I loved, I loved to read, I think, but I didn't, I didn't know that I saw, thought of myself as a reader necessarily. You know, it was, it was just, sort of where you went to sometimes to escape and sometimes to find yourself and sometimes it was assigned you know and anything from comics to um what we were reading in school i would pretty much happily consume i was pretty omnivorous about it and my students you know what's so interesting about them is that they're reading all the time and maybe randy you can agree that our students are reading all the time i don't know um what your school is like but at my school a lot of kids just don't think they don't self-identify as readers even though they're reading all the time, if you ask them, and I did ask about 300 of them, whether they would self-identify as readers and over 78% said no. Hmm. So that is something that is work to change, but you two make it easier because <laughs> the students read books, not only in which they see themselves, but just non-white people, I think, because that's our school environment. 
we have very few white people in our school environment. It's 89% students of color. And then the staff, which this is very common, is mostly white teachers. Mm -hmm. So, um, but overall, you know, 2000 people in the building, a little over 2000 people in the building, most people are people of color, they're brown or black. So um, how do you think that today's students experience the reading journey in your class, in the, the schools that you visited, um, according to people that you know, children that you might know, what do you think about that? Go for it, Randy. <laughs> I feel like a teacher when I call yeah, on Michelle. And also yeah. I feel like Randy, I'm really interested in hearing your perspective as a teacher and then also as a writer. Yeah, you know, it, it is really interesting because, you know, you're talking about students not thinking of themselves as readers. Um, you know, with how much they use social media, they're probably reading more than any other generation before them, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and also, like, this is a small thing, but I, I find also, like, the younger generation is w much more comfortable with subtitles also when they watch uh, movies yeah, and videos. I all the time. Yeah, yeah, I insist on having them. And so I think, you know, at the at the level of just, like, physically reading, they're doing it more than ever before. Um, but I think part of part of what I see as the as the struggle is just kind of the the matter of attention right where is that attention going uh, because as much as I do engage with social media and kind of see the advantages of it um, or other forms of media um, I do think that there's a depth in you know narrative prose that you don't quite get in other mediums mm -hmm. um, you know I love movies I love TV shows I think maybe TV shows are moving closer to that Mm -hmm. uh, with kind of moving more towards like storytelling arcs. And I could talk about TV for a really long time because I watch a lot of TV shows. Uh, but I think, you know, in terms of just pure language of prose and the ability to put yourself into somebody else's mind almost directly or as directly as we can get, mm -hmm. you know, without physically being the other person, you know, there's still something magical and something valuable in that. And as a teacher, part of what I see my role is just kind of like helping kids understand that and helping kids discover that. Um, and, you know, some get it inherently, some some get it because they've been taught that by their families, they've been exposed to different books, but then a vast majority of kids have only read really kind of what was assigned to them to read in school. And, uh, you know, speaking as a teacher, a lot of the, a lot of times those texts aren't that great. They're not speaking to the kids <laughs> of mm -hmm. today, right? They're speaking to the kids primarily like the white kids of 50, 60 years ago, and they just get recycled on these on this curricula over and over again. Um, and so I think part of how I get kids to kind of realize the power that's inherent in language and reading, uh, you know, in terms of like longer form books or short stories or poetry is to expose them to texts that are powerful, that can speak for themselves and that they, they might be able to connect with in a way that uh, they might not be able to connect as easily with in terms of other texts. I don't know if that makes any sense, but. It does, it does. <laughs> I have a question though, um, that isn't one of the questions that I sent you in advance. What is the, your school like? What's the, what are the demographics? Where is it? What's, if you feel comfortable, you know, just I think yeah. for context, it'd be important to know if yours is similar to mine or different, because I know that in very um, restrictive environments, we don't have as much choice about the books that students read. Mm -hmm. And in the least restrictive environments, there are a lot of options for what students can read. So I'm curious about your teaching journey there. 
So when I was teaching in public school, and it was a lot more restrictive in terms of here's the textbook that we use for this grade level, um, I basically just didn't do that. Um, <laughs> I kind of just did my own thing. Uh, you know, I've got books by like Walter Dean Myers and Sharon Flake and stuff. Um, got class sets kind of through a combination of like donors choose, going through used bookstores, you know, buying stuff online for discounted prices um, and kind of curated my own classroom library in that way um, with class sets that I could use as well as like small group reading, you know, like loop circles kind of approach um, as well as just like compiling all like a ton of books that I could on my own uh, to kind of have my own classroom library to have like an independent reading kind of element so that kids were also reading kind of on top of that. And we were also like reading a book together as a class, in which case like uh, sometimes one of those class sets, sometimes something that I would just bring in. Um, when I got to the charter school, it was a little bit, you know, we weren't beholden to the district necessarily uh, because charter schools run kind of independently of the district. But we did have, you know, our own budget to think about. And so like I, I could choose kind of the books that we've read. Um, and so, you know, I would choose things like Autobiography of Malcolm X and stuff like that. Um, and I would use the budget because I was eventually the department chair there. Um, and so we use the budget to like buy those class sets. But then you're kind of like you kind of are teaching that book for a few years. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. They expect you to get those copies worn yeah. out. And, yeah. Uh, so that was, you know, I spent many, many an hour repairing them with tape and you know the bindings and everything myself get them as last as long as they could um and then now in the private school setting you know there's a lot more latitude um in at least the school that i'm at in terms of what i get to choose to read um when i started out it was very very much the dead white guy canon not a single person of color on the reading list for the grade that i was teaching um and now that list looks wildly different <laughs> includes like Americana and Born a Crime and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, so I understand that, like it's different, different situations. And I guess I've kind of always sort of been the person to kind of just do what I'm going to do and what I think is right in a given situation and kind of deal with the consequences if I need to. Mm -hmm. uh, but for the most part, yeah, for the most part, it worked out, I think, decently well. So I'm going to kind of skip ahead a few questions because I think that this will work for Namrata to tell us a little bit about how Kokila plays into this work that you were just describing of changing up what is taught, changing up what's on the list. Um, I was talking about or thinking about Kokila, as I understand it, and how the goal is to tell the stories of those on the fringes or who have historically been erased, we say marginalized often. Um, so what are you hoping that teachers will do, but then also that students will take away from not only patron saints, but the other books as well that are part of the Kokila imprint? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think our hope is to, I mean, first and foremost is just to make the best books, right? Mm -hmm. That's just, that's our, um, that's sort of our contract with our reader. It's like, if we're going to hand a book to a, a child, a middle grader, a, a teen, you want to give them something that like respects um, their sort of place in the world and like gives them um, gives them the, the, the best work that I'm capable of is like what I need to deliver. Like that's like the, kind of the first thing. And so I feel like, you know, outside of any sort of mission driven work, which I think, you know, we are a very mission driven imprint is this sort of hope to make the most dynamic 
powerful stories um, because that's what everyone is going to want to come to. I don't, you know, I don't think of our work at all as niche. Um, that that's something that sometimes comes up when people ask, like, "Oh, what does it mean when you're sort of elevating marginalized stories?" And does that mean that it's like a very narrow focus of your list, and, um, or that your list has a very narrow focus? And 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 my feelings sort of been usually to respond with saying that publishing is always interested in new voices, maybe just not equally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and my hope is to sort of take the doors of publishing and open them wider rather than to make it narrower. And so I think right. in that way, what I hope that we get, you know, and when when a, when a reader picks up a book that is published by Coquitla, is one that they know that they're going to get something wonderful that's truly deeply thought through, um, but also that just basically reflects the real world that we live in. Yeah. So I don't think like reality is not niche. Right? Yeah. And that's, um, and that lets you understand sort of um, life in a lot of different ways. Like Randy's book has a lot of um, sort of serious subject matter to it, right? Because it talks about Duterte's war on drugs. It talks about like extrajudicial killings by the, you know, by the police. Um, but it's also coming of age. It's also, there's a lot of like humor. There's a little bit of romance. There's all of the things that are part of, uh, a complete person's life. And I think our hope is that we just make books that really um, respect our characters and our readers as complete people, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I sometimes hope that for teachers and educators that they see, you know, our, our books so far have been, um, I mean, we're, you know, we're kind of a, a newer imprint. We just started um, publishing our first books last summer, summer 2019. I didn't know that. So we're just a year in really. And, you know, our first list had Randy's book, which is a National Book Award finalist. And we had Vera Hirandani's, um The Night Diary, and that was a Newbery honor. And we had Hair Love, which is a Times bestseller. And, you know, um, I always think of art. Like, cover art, as you're saying, these. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and not to say, like, prizes are the things that are important, but to say, like, they've been really well received. I think that, and the, the thing that I hope is, like, what we try to do in curating the list is just work with the most, um, the smartest, most dynamic, most thoughtful people. So I feel like even when you hear Randy talk about his approach as a teacher, it tells me a lot about the kind of writer that I get to work with, right? That he says, I understand the rules as they exist. I see how they are failing our kids and um, what I can do to um, circumvent that, how I can be empowered to um end a program of thinking that is potentially damaging to young minds because it is so narrow in its focus and excludes so many of us. And and I think you're right. It's not just about seeing yourself. It's about seeing the world. It's about seeing, um, you know, sort of, yeah, the, the fullness of the world we live in because that, that, that only that only reinforces all our humanity, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, I'm not Filipina and I loved working on Randy's book. And, and there were so many points of entry and there were so many points that I had questions where I had to really educate myself too to make sure that I could be as thoughtful and entertaining as possible. And I think what I want to do is try to match the level of care, sort of rigor and compassion that I think our writers bring to their work as their editor. That's, and I hope that when you see that in the book, that like a teacher or parent or kid will see our little logo on the spine and be like, I trust that thing. They make good books. Those books are dope. And like, I feel things when I read them. That's how a book touches you. And, and so I'd say like, 
yeah, if there's anything that we're trying to do across the board, it's just to work with the most interesting minds because they're going to tell the best stories. And, and like you said, I mean, these stories are a part of the real world when we have just a really narrow subset of human experience that we present to our students in school, which has happened for decades, for centuries, then we are presenting a false idea of what reality is. That you know, universality is only only belongs to certain folks. Yeah, recently, you know, our team we were having discussions about kind of um, some of the books coming up on our on our future list, and I feel like every year that goes by, you know, we're we're constantly trying to sort of refine our understanding of what we're trying to do. And mm-hmm. something came up recently, and we we're talking about this in, in a launch meeting we had for our we, we just launched our summer twenty one list, so we let everyone in house know this book. These are the books coming up in a year from now, right? I don't know if I've seen that. I need to see that. Yeah, I don't know if you would have, but I'm happy to give you a sneak peek. <laughs> I got you. Thank um, you. But when we do that, I kind of looked at the books and I said, "What is each of these books doing?" Right? And I felt like one of the things that I think is really driving our work, and I kind of look for it all of our all of our projects is one used to say sort of like that they work on multiple levels, but there might be sort of the joyfulness of a dad and daughter taking a ride on a motorcycle, as you see in my puppy as a motorcycle. Uh, but underneath there are layers about gentrification, about the, about the um, contribution of immigrant families, building of American cities. There's always more going on. And now as I think further about something that, that I think is part of the mission of our work is we often look at making books as a creative act right? As, literally, it's like act of creation, right? Yeah. But in that way that is generative. And I think that's often seen in a really positive light, which obviously it should be. But I think that it's really important. And I think about very much also as a destructive act. And this is sort of a power that I'm trying to harness in our work, right. because there are narratives that have been perpetuated over time that we need to actively undo, that we need to, uh, you know, whether you undo it by attacking it head on, or whether you undo it by saying, I see you over there from the side of my eye, and I choose to turn away because mm-hmm. it's a different way of looking at the story. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I see that's happening in our books is each story doesn't just give a new narrative. It's subtly or sometimes directly in like in, in sort of direct battle undoes an old mm-hmm. narrative that we feel like we don't have room for anymore. Yeah. And so I love this sense of like we have creators who are also destroyers. And yes. Like that's part of disruptors. <laughs> yeah, disruptors, yeah. right? I mean, that's like we have this term that you may have heard of called curriculum violence, and that is when the um, curriculum taught in a school is culturally destructive. So, meaning it is perpetuating those narratives that you were just talking about that are, for example, seeing a marginalized culture through the white gaze, exactly only. And that tends to be, that can be, and usually is um, destructive for the person who owns or identifies with that culture and then has to see themselves through the gaze of somebody who has often perpetuated systems of oppression, et cetera. Um, So this question is for Randy. um, And it also connects to what you just said, Namrata. It's about creative writing. So we have removed a lot of creative writing. I'm not sure how long you've been a teacher, Randy. Um, I've been in the secondary education field for about 16 years. And, 14. Okay, so about the same time. So do you remember kind of in the beginning, you could still do creative writing projects and units. You could take time 
out of the whatever curriculum unit to do creative writing projects. And it wasn't a big deal. Yeah, it was. I kind of came into teaching, like No Child Left Behind was kind of really starting to gain traction. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when I came in, it was, we were pretty much already in the mode, especially in the public schools of teaching essentially to the state test. Mm -hmm. um, at that point I was in New Jersey and I could like still tell you the format of the test. And one of the things that they had on it was uh, the picture prompt narrative where- <laughs> Interesting, <laughs> I've never seen that. Yeah, where students would get a picture and some random picture and they'd have like, I forget, 15 or 20 or 25 minutes to like write a story inspired by that picture. Um, and so it was kind of interesting because it was kind of, you know, asking them to do some creative writing and so in preparing them for that, we usually had lessons on creative light writing, but also like, you know, looking back on that now as somebody who has written stories, like what a horrible way to teach creative writing. Right. <laughs> like just to put that pressure and make it this like box of like, you have to write this very quickly and then you never go back to it. You never revise it. Uh, you know, you're doing it for the test and then you're walking away from it. And it's like something that you're being forced to create and then you're being forced to abandon it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the, the longer I taught, the more I think the testing moved away from that and kind of became much more just focused on analytical uh, thinking. And yeah, there's definitely something that's lost in that. And, and it's always something that has kind, of, has kind of blown my mind that people don't see that, right? Like when you practice creative writing, like you also learn to analyze better, right? <laughs> Like yeah. if I write something and I have to create realistic characters, I become better at looking at other stories and analyzing the way the authors created those characters. Yeah. Um, if I'm trying to create a symbol, I'm better at analyzing symbolism, right? So these two things go hand in hand. And I think we've kind of lost sight of that because the nature of standardized texting is to essentially decontextualize everything for what we think of as like an artificial progress uh, or benchmark of where students should be, uh, right. which is something that concerns me. <laughs> right, and the benchmark moves, right? That's what concerns me and what is so difficult for me is that the every time my students feel like they're approaching exemplary or proficient, they'll just move the goalpost and they'll yeah. say, you know, you're still not there, sorry. And even, I mean, in inherently, tests are a tool of white supremacy and kind of continue, continuing to perpetuate these systems. So even yeah. if it's, you know, we could even move the conversation beyond, like, are they going to get a passing score on the test to like, what does it mean to have a passing score um, in, you know, any kind of given subject? Um, and yeah, like you work with kids, you know how individual it is. And yeah, there are trends that you want to see in patterns, uh, but it comes down to so much more of just like, where are they coming in and where are they, where are they leaving? And like, how much have you inspired them kind of to take ownership over whatever it is to to get them to love that that subject or that area um and that's something that is yeah it, it it drives me crazy because there's just so much i think that is that is ruined about learning about education by by the nature the very nature and existence of standardized tests i agree and there's so much focus like you were mentioning on the analytical and on argumentative writing so i want to go back to something that you said about feeling inspired at some point you decided to try this thing called writing for young people 
And I would love for our, our listeners to, who are also readers of your book and potentially your other books as well. Can you tell us just a little bit about how that happened? How did you become a teacher writer? And then how did you decide, how did you find your way to Kokila? So this is a long story, but I'll try, I'll try <laughs> to make it as quick as possible or as brief as possible. Um, yeah, like I said earlier, like I just kind of went through school doing what I was supposed to be doing, right? And getting the grades I was supposed to get. Um, and it was really in 11th grade when I hit, when I went into the IB program, um, before I hadn't done like pre-IB or anything, I had moved from Michigan to Colorado. And so when I moved, my counselor was like, hey, you have pretty good grades, you should try this program. And I was like, okay, sure. Um, and at first it just kicked my butt because the IB program requires a lot of critical thinking in a way I felt like I had never been asked to think about anything before. Yeah. Um, so for the first time I felt like I was really challenged and almost like woke up intellectually in terms of using my brain to kind of question the world, not just regurgitate or not just kind of do what I think the teacher wanted me to do. Um, I mean, we had a class called theory of knowledge, which is kind of all about, you know, epistemology, how we know what we know. Mm -hmm. And in that class, we would like analyze silent films. We would analyze linguistics. We were given assignments like come up with the perfect school. Uh, all these things that I'd yeah, never been yeah. asked to do before. Yeah. You're the perfect school? Yeah. Uh, That's awesome. We have to talk about that later. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so that was, I think that was kind of the start of where I, I started to question kind of what I was doing and why I was doing it, right? Uh, for the first time. And then when I went to college, I went in as an aerospace engineering major with an Air Force ROTC scholarship. And that was largely part of kind of what my family had pushed me into doing. Uh, and after a year of that, I was just like, no, thanks. I'm done. I don't want to be part of the military. I don't want to be an engineer. Uh, switched over to English just because I thought it was interesting. I didn't really know you could like study stories full time. Um, and so I thought that was cool. Uh, and that was really, I think, where things started to change for me because for the first time, I really started to read, read stories, read like James Baldwin, Gene Toomer, Sandra Cisneros, Toni Morrison, uh, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, and even though I'm not black, I'm not Latinx. Well, arguably, maybe I am because of Spanish colonialism, but uh, <laughs> so many <laughs> I was reading so many of these books that kind of gave voice to my own experiences in a way that I had never read before. Uh, and, you know, reading about double consciousness, you know, yeah. obviously I'm not black, but kind of I could really relate to that idea of like Filipino and American and kind of these two parts of my identity that don't really fit together because I'd always grown up with people trying to place me ethnically by asking me the, the question of what are you? Horrible. over and over again <laughs> yeah. horrible yeah. and uh and so when i was reading that stuff it kind of started to make sense and then i kind of start i started to understand i think the like literature not just as escapism but literature as something that can help you explore and understand yourself and kind of make sense of yourself and make sense of your community in a, in a way that i had never really thought of before um and so when i decided eventually to go into teaching specifically with English, it was the idea of I wanted to make kids feel that um, in a way that I had never felt when I was in high school. Um, I didn't want kids just feeling like they were doing assignments for the sake of doing assignments. I wanted them to really understand the power of literature and like all the different ways it can actually impact us and in turn actually impact the world. So this kind of connects with um, a question that I think a lot of 
students ask because they don't see themselves as um, creators, which is so depressing now that I'm saying it out loud. They don't see themselves as readers. They don't self-identify as readers. And then because of what we've done to them often in the school system in many places, not all, but many, they don't see themselves as creators. So they don't see themselves as a future you who could be writing for young people. So Namrata, could you tell us a little bit just about how publishing and Own Voices Text, how that kind of came to be? How does the publishing industry go about finding writers and then, you know, editing, producing and acquiring books like this? Right. So, I mean, that that's a conversation we could have all day <laughs> um, because, but there's, you know, I can give you the sort of the broad strokes overview of how it's sort of often been done and maybe how things are changing a little bit. You know, I think traditionally publishing has been a largely um, uh, sort of elite or whatever that means, right? <laughs> For all of the things that codes in sort of um, not very inclusive community of um, people who uh, could consider themselves culture makers, right? So this, it's, it's often been... Um, like if you look at the demographics of even publishing today of people who work in publishing, it's, you know, largely cis white hat, um, able, uh, employees who work in publishing houses, um, very female though, in terms of editorial uh, and in children's books, it skews more female than male for using this binary. Uh, but like generally what's happened is there's sort of a series of gatekeepers who, either funnel in or stand in the way of stories making their way to publication and to readers. So generally say like someone writes a book, um, they work on it, they feel like it's in good shape, they're ready to send it out. They usually try to find what's called like a literary agent, right? Mm -hmm. And literary agents work all over the country. They work at big agencies. Some of them are individual shops and you can like send them your work. They read through all of the submissions that they receive and they decide who to represent right? Then they represent someone and then they decide like, oh, this book feels like it'd be a really good fit for not just this publisher, but this particular editor at this, at this publishing house. I and see. A big part of their job is to sort of be a matchmaker and to really cultivate those relationships. They know where to place a text. And then they send the book out to editors all over the country, largely in New York, but all over the country. And, um, and from there, hopefully someone feels like they're, uh, they, they, you know, the text resonates with them, they're a match for it, which also brings with it its own problems because if if publishing has largely been sort of white, middle class and coastal for most of its history, um, and you're someone who's writing from outside of that experience, is someone gonna be like, Oh yeah, that book really resonated with me? It it may be a little bit harder to have that sense of connection, right? Which mm -hmm. which might explain why when you look at the stats around which books get published, so if you look in like children's literature, um, you know, there are more books about animals and inanimate objects, like, you know, so bears and trucks, basically, mm -hmm. uh, than there are books about all children of color combined. So black, mm -hmm. indigenous, POC kids, all combined. Few, fewer books about them than there are about trucks and bears. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, so there's a lot of ways in which the limitations of sort of our own indoctrination has influenced the industry, which influences the books that are then available to kids, which then sort of perpetuates the cycle. Wow. Um, with your question about own voices, sorry, did you want to say something else? Like, no, I was just going to say that when you when you are mm -hmm. saying these things, I'm very much thinking of it as a network of people who are connected to other people. So if you don't have the connections, if you, so there's the cultural piece where whoever's reading your manuscript has to be able to 
see the vision. And if they're not culturally aware or even racially literate themselves, then that can present a lot of problems, racially or ethnically literate, that can present some problems. But then I'm seeing like, they've gotta be connected to people who will then move your project along to other folks who will also be culturally or ethnically literate, perhaps. Right, right, right. And you know, there are certainly, um, there are certainly houses who have been out looking for um, writers from a lot of different backgrounds for a long time who remove some of those hurdles and gatekeepers would all say, you know, they are open to submissions that are unagented, things like this. So there's, there's, that's existed. And I think more and more big houses are starting to do that as time goes okay. on. One of the things like, so Kokila, you know, we're a small intern at a very big house. Penguin Random House is the largest publishing um, company in the world. And for us, we felt like it was important um, to try to make like reaching us more accessible. So one of the things we did is sort of, we have an open submissions period every fall where it's like anyone can send in their thing and we're just gonna make sure that we take the rest of the year to read through and respond you know, to like all of those projects, which is a tough thing to do because we're a small group, but we're doing our best to go through every single one. So we spend a chunk of our you know, time every week to like go through all of the hundreds and hundreds of submissions that come in. Yeah. But you know, a lot of houses now are really interested in finding writers from a lot of backgrounds you asked about sort of own voices and that you know I'm, I'm guessing a lot of your readers know but in case they don't like that's sort of about writing within sort of the cultural expertise of your own experience right not writing outside of your experience so um i think a lot of a lot of publishing is interested in finding more own voices writers and that's great i have some concerns around that too because i think that if it's seen in a sort of superficial level it can be a way of us like outsourcing the responsibility of having cultural competence to the writer themselves. And if we as editors and sort of publishing professionals can't interrogate their work in a way that makes it better, then we're failing them in a way that we have, you know, that we've provided that service to white writers for decades in, in the industry. And to say that now we're interested in writers from other backgrounds, but we can't actually give them the tools to succeed in the way that we gave white writers to succeed feels pretty problematic. Yes. Um, so, you know, so that's to say that there's a lot of people who want to read the work of um, young writers coming up from all different backgrounds with many different stories to tell. I think there's a real hunger for this. And I think publishing is catching up to realizing that we have like a, there's like a real market, right? Like there's, a, it's not just like a responsibility in sort of a moralistic way. It's just sort of like, this is where there's great storytelling to be found. Yeah. Um, so that's there, but I wouldn't, I think I would be lying if I didn't acknowledge how um, challenging it can be to get your work in front of the eyes of an editor at a major publishing house because it the system has been designed to not give everyone access. Wow. And that's so important for us to hear and think about because I have a lot of students from suburbia who say mm -hmm. that they want to be writers and mm -hmm. they'll me their manuscript in a Google Doc that's like a 300 page fantasy about like a, a fan fiction. Yo, it is big right now. The children love <laughs> fan fiction. They love it. So Randy, I we have not talked much about patron saints and I'd love for the folks, we're going to talk a little bit more later um, because Randy and I are going to do a Facebook Live for them. But I'd love to hear just a little bit about that process of how patron saints came to Kokila, how did you come up with the story? And then what are you hoping teachers will do in the best of circumstances? Teachers and students will do with the book in the best circumstances. So yeah, that's a lot, that's a lot. Again, I'll try to- I do that. I do that. I do <laughs> Four questions in one. They hate when I write tests. <laughs> yeah. Um, so 
the novel itself kind of started with me kind of deciding to explore some of my own questions and confusions about my own racial, ethnic, national identity. Um, as somebody born in the Philippines, raised in the United States, uh, kind of having lived in different places, but primarily raised in predominantly white communities. Um, and intertwined in that is also obviously the story of the drug war. You know, if you haven't read it yet, Filipino-American teen whose cousin in the Philippines is killed as part of the ongoing drug war in the Philippines, um, tries to figure out what happened to his cousin. And so those two things for me, you know, at the same time I was starting to think about what to write next, I was reading about the drug war, which started in 2016 when Rodrigo Duterte became president in the Philippines. Like on the very day, this is one of his platform promises, right? Tough on crime, law and order. And on the very day he was inaugurated, they started and like 40 people were killed that day as a result of operations. That day. So I was thinking about this a lot and reading about it a lot and kind of had this question of like, well, what is my, what is my role to kind of speak out against this? You know, I feel it's wrong. I feel it's wrong. I feel it's a violation of human rights, constitutional rights. Uh, but I'm not in the Philippines, right? Mm. And I haven't lived there since I left when I was born, not well, when I was like one. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what right do I have to like really talk about what's happening over there? I still have family over there. I still have friends over there. Uh, and so I had that question. But then I also had the question of, you know, what would teen me have thought about all of this, right? <laughs> when I was like, question to just like start with that, yeah. A teenager, as being a Filipino American, like if I were reading about all of this, kind of what would I think about it and how would I process it? So it kind of started with that question and me kind of exploring what that means. And so I knew right away that I needed to, that it was a story about a Filipino American kid processing what's going on in the Philippines. It's not a story about the drug war, it's not a story of about the Philippine perspective of the drug war, right? It's very much so a Filipino-American boy is trying to process it and trying to figure out, uh, you know, what it means and kind of his family's connections to it and kind of the, the, the deeper things that that unearths, right? Because it's all connected to each other. It's all a manifestation of these, these deeper histories. Uh, and so, the, so that's kind of like where it started. Uh, when I was working on it, I didn't know... I honestly didn't know if anybody was going to pick it up mm -hmm. uh, because I had never read a story about a Filipino American teen boy in my life. I had never seen one on the cover of a book. Um, you know, any, all the Filipino American literature that I had read up to that point, uh, either poetry or written for adults. Mm. Um, and so I'd never seen it in children's literature. Um, you know, at, at the point I was starting to work on this, Erin Entrada Kelly had already, I think she had won the Newberry or was like, even the, she won it while I was writing it or when I was working on it, I don't know. Uh, but she was like really the only other Filipino American author that I knew. Uh, and then later on, there's like a few more of us now and Melissa De La Cruz, I learned about a little bit later. Um, but for the most part, I just didn't know. I didn't know if people would be interested. I didn't know if people would be connected with it. Uh, but I've always kind of, you know, kind of like what I was talking about with my teaching. I kind of just follow what I think is right, <laughs> yeah. regardless now, of consequences yeah. for it. Other books previously? Yeah, two previously. Uh, and so the first one is kind of about a group of kids of color who play Dungeons and Dragons and go on a road trip. And then the second one is about two friends who kind of live in a, a fictional mashup of like Philly and Camden, which is where I was teaching and living. Um, 
and one is really good at basketball and gets a scholarship uh, to go to a private school and kind of focuses on like the fallout and the friendship uh, of that. I feel like I can see the cover of that one. Does it have, is it orange and black or no? Yeah. Like okay. probably most books about basketball. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. Fair. That's fair. Yeah. I can see it because I, I know I have it. But anyway, keep going. Yeah. And so I, I included like I included Filipino American characters in those books, but I didn't like directly, I guess, confront the idea of Filipino American identity. Um, and so Patron States of Nothing was kind of my decision to do that. Right. Um, at that time, I'd also my agent of the time had left the industry. So I also had to query a new agent. <laughs> Kind of like as I was working and had, getting this manuscript prepared and ready to ready to send out, um, I basically had to find a new agent, um, and that was kind of scary because you know so there's always this thought of like nobody else is going to want me. The first one was a fluke, and so on and so forth. Um, but I found a great agent and Beth Phelan, um, who is a wonderful agent and also organizes hashtag DV Pit, which is another incredible way that. Uh, you know, as Namrata was talking about, kind of widening the doors of publishing. Uh, and, you know, when we were talking about where to send it, it was kind of a matter of like, which editors are going to connect with this, right? Um, and and she was really excited about something she heard that Namrata was starting up at Penguin uh, with Kokila. At that point, it didn't exist yet, but she had kind of known about it, had an ear to the ground um, and was like, we should definitely consider submitting to her, um, you know, and we submitted to a few other people as well. Um, and eventually went to auction and, you know, I decided to go with Kokila and Namrata because I just thought what they were doing was so great and kind of aligned with, you know, the ethos of how I had been kind of writing in this kind of very mission driven uh, approach to how I live my life. And I liked that the imprint was kind of doing that itself. When I went to auction, we had like a few different offers. Um, I ultimately decided to go with Kokila because I really like the idea of like the entire imprint is doing this, right? It's not just like one editor who's trying to do it, uh, but it's like a network of people who kind of get it and are going to give me support along the way as opposed to just a single editor who kind of understands it. And so that was important to me. Um, and I'm very, very glad that we did end up going with Kokila. Me too. Oh, you had, <laughs> you had a second question that I think I completely forgot. Was it about like how teachers will use it? Well, yeah, that's kind of where <laughs> I wanted to end here because I know that Kokila is going to be coming out. I know one. I can't I can't remember the title of it right now, but um, Namrata, you talked about it in a Penguin preview. So I saw the cover of it. Beautiful rainbow hair on this. Oh, yeah, yeah. my rainbow. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. cool. all right. So I know there are going to be lots more coming out. And I just want to know for our teachers, for our newer teachers, who sometimes they have to fight that battle. They have to go to people and defend the use of the books that they want in classrooms, which is unfortunate. But in the most restrictive environments, you do have to have, you know, this is how this is going to tie into my curriculum. So I'd love to know just from each of you, if you want to talk in general or specifically about patron saints, either way is good. But how can teachers fight that fight? Well, how ideally would they use it with students in classrooms? So I'll go ahead first, I guess, as, as a teacher. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, like if you're if you're looking at the Common Core standards, there's you know there's a million things you can do with the book that also aligns with the Common Core standards. Uh, but deeper than that, you know, I think I think first of all, 
giving students the space to discuss and create their own questions. A lot of times we're used to asking the students the questions, right? Here are the questions I came up with. But I think one of the more powerful things we can do is teach students how to ask questions, how to ask interesting, insightful questions, mm -hmm. and then giving them the space to do that with whatever they're reading, be it patron saints, if nothing, or, you know, anything else. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I feel like I'm not great at marketing my book because I'm like, yeah, if you love patron saints and nothing, you should use it. But you can also use like whatever else you want to use that you're, <laughs> you think but your I students would be down with. But, you know, I think that what's important about your book is it can tie in with, if we want, social studies, but it can also tie in with ethics and cultural studies. Yeah. It, can, it can tie in in a lot of different ways. What's going to be so important is that folks, I love what you said about supporting students in doing that critical consciousness development work so that they can come up with the questions and that it's not always the teacher who's having to create. Is there a teaching guide that exists for it already? That's what I was just, I couldn't remember. I thought maybe we had one. I was looking to see. I'm not uh, sure. I don't think is. so. Yeah. I'm kind of theoretically opposed to a teaching. Guy. <laughs> okay, right. I, I understand. I mean, I definitely understand that. I think that it's, it's, I know that doesn't, again, that doesn't help the marketing. But <laughs> well, in my environment, we have so many people who did the three week summer camp and then learned to be teachers from like Teach for America, which if you're listening, that's, what, that's actually what I was. I was Teach for America originally. And that happens a lot in my environment. Yeah. And so folks do not have language arts degrees necessarily or like English degrees. So they don't really know how to teach literature a lot of times. So the teaching mm -hmm. side supports people who are maybe like they were, you know, a film studies major or like a philosophy major. Um, I think sometimes the teaching guide can support people in understanding how it's like a fast track to understand how you can align with the standards. But I can totally respect if you're philosophically opposed, <laughs> that does need to happen for your books. You know what, okay. I would, what I would think there, Randy, the, the, the talk that you gave at Allen, was yeah. that it? after NCT, there was a speech, and I'm sure it's probably available online. I don't know, maybe uh, if you want link to it in the podcast notes or something. I feel like that, I think, is a really excellent tool for teachers in thinking about how to discuss, I mean, not just Randy's book, all, all books, like all the, all the work that they teach, because you know, he really went into kind of a discussion of like, how do you look at something through a feminist lens? How do you look at something through a Marxist lens? How do you look at something through a, you know, anti-racist lens? How do you look through something through a sort of post-colonial lens? And and I think all of those um, uh, tools are applicable across so many titles, but particularly on Patron Saints of Nothing. And I think like, even as his editor, where like, I don't have a background as an educator, you know, but my whole job is to be in conversation with the author so that the questions I might ask will prod, you know, will prod the process to get it to a deeper truth. Yeah. And that means having to find inside me those questions to like nurture that deepest curiosity and sort of, I, and I remember thinking about things about like linguistics where it's like, okay, I'm not a Tagalog speaker, but I don't have to learn about all of these other languages from the Philippines too and how they interact and sort of the, sometimes the sort of cultural hierarchy that might exist. And then it was like, now I have to learn about, um, there's like maritime law things I was Googling. <laughs> this is a question I have about how we label this thing in the ocean, you know, like all of this stuff comes up. And I think that that to me was such a good exercise in recognizing how many avenues of exploration a book could open to you. And so I think like probably Randy's speech from, from Alan in, in, you know, in, in conversation with the book will be a real, what would lead to really robust discussions in classrooms. Yeah. And I don't mean to like come off of like totally anti 
teacher guide, but I think the danger, the danger in in training pre-service teachers is if you teach it too too prescriptive or too here's the script, here's what you do, here are the questions to ask, then then we're not teaching them to be critical thinkers as educators, right? right. Just, we want t- students to be critical thinkers when they engage with text. Like we also need to train teachers to be critical thinkers and how they're engaging with their pedagogy. Absolutely. Uh, and I think, yeah, and I think sometimes that's that's the danger. And having been taught initially under Teach for America, I had to go back and unlearn a lot of that. I bet. Right? I bet. I've seen it. I've seen the best of it and I've seen the worst of it. And I think some folks have a natural natural propensity to be teachers and to be critical thinkers. And it sounds like you're a very balanced brain type of person if you did the aerospace stuff and then you also were you doing- say I did the aerospace stuff well. <laughs> <laughs> I was like that kid that was like scraping by, you know, and like praying for a good curve on the exams. <laughs> I cried a lot in math class. Science was always fine for me, but when you had to do math, I would just, I think it was an emotional thing because I have friends who are math teachers and they tell me that half of their job is just believe, helping their students believe that they have the math in them. Mm-hmm. So part of my job is helping the students believe that they have the stories in them. It's mm-hmm. just about valuing their own story enough to get it out and to then be okay with that process of tweaking it and like refining it. And as you were mentioning, you know, that process of doing the research and and having to go into the text and ask yourself questions that a reader might ask. Um, I think that's really powerful for teachers to think about too. As Because I hate that a lot of our job is seen as correcting student writing because really we're supposed to be more like a mentor or a coach or somebody who's just helping them to find, you know, that beautiful, like we're taking a rough diamond and shaping it into, you know, the finished one, um, not the child, but whatever they're working on. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. are there any final, you know, thoughts that you have for, for educators um, who might be listening to this podcast? You know, I think, Educators who are here might might be getting it a little bit already, uh, but you know I think I think so much is important. So much more can be done with kind of connecting with each other, uh, connecting with other educators, connecting with researchers, connecting with academics, and connecting with people in the publishing industry who kind of get it, right? Uh, you know things like hashtag disrupt texts, uh, project lit community, right? <laughs> like these kind of grassroots efforts of bringing those people across these different realms that are all trying to do the same thing essentially together. Like there's so much value in that. And, you know, so if anybody out there is listening, like you don't have to do this alone, like it's impossible to do it alone. Right. And like a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, like I didn't just like suddenly realize this one day, (laughs) right. I got it from talking with other people, reading things that were out there, uh, you know, and, and all of that. And so I just encourage like anyone who's out there, like, connect like find that community who's kind of doing that good work and connect with it Uh, and and there can be you know so much of your own growth is going to be tied into that but then also you can bring a lot to that community uh through the way that you grow absolutely absolutely any any final uh words of advice namrata for our our kids who want to be writers our teachers who are coaches of future writers and then what can we do to support the publishing industry um, so I don't know that I have a piece of advice, but I think I have just like a to say thank you to educators, right? Um, because I think we're all sort of in different parts of the same um, work and and 
we couldn't do it without without the work that you guys do. And I think like kind of to what Randy was saying about sort of um, going on your own journey and how that can um, enhance the experience of your kids. I think we feel the same way as editors and publishers, which is that we want to do the good work, but also we want to push ourselves to continue to doing better work because that's our responsibility. And so I think like if you have, um, you know, if you're teaching creative writing, you're working with young students, especially you're working with students of color or from other mag- marginalized backgrounds, like the gift of listening thoughtfully and truly to their stories, you know, is is one that like we're all going to benefit from. If you can help them know how valuable their voices are, it's like that could change somebody else's life down the down the road, right? You could be that first sort of inflection point in a narrative taking shape that one day will become the books that, you know, someone holds dear in the way that we all have books that we hold dear. So I feel like that's, it is sort of, it's hard to imagine so far in the future, but I think that power really rests in in educators now. And I, and I am very aware of that and, and grateful for it. And also, yeah, I'm sort of imploring educators to be, you know, to, to be present for their young writers in that way. Um, and then in terms of like how you can support publishing, being more inclusive, publishing more diverse titles, that kind of thing. I mean, it's sort of thing where people often say like, you know, vote with your pocketbook, right? It's, it's the same thing. It's like, um, you know, I, I, I know that a lot of educators, I'm talking to both of you actually, like the ways in which you work within the systems and the confines that you have to have more representative libraries, to get the kinds of titles you need, to get the funding, to get the kinds of titles you need. And I know that's probably um, a dance that is very, very intricate that, I, that I'm that i quite outside of. But I think doing things like that where it's like spending the money on the books that are going to, um, that are the kinds of books you want to see more of, lets us in publishing know, oh, these books are being adopted by schools and libraries, they're being taught, it's increasing our sales. We're going to publish more of them because ultimately we're a for-profit business yeah and seeing that is in you know is maybe one of the most concrete ways in which any editor who's trying to bring in a book can make the case for the next book that they want to bring in to be like look at these numbers the numbers tell the story you know they are not um they're not biased in this way they're just you know so um so i guess that would be it too is just support the work of the writers you love and really look at how you are diversifying your bookshelves because it is um, you know, it's an act of sort of conscientiousness and rebellion that you have to engage in. I love it. I love it. I love it. If people are listening and you're still with us, rebellion, destruction at the same time, <laughs> you create new things. That is your learning objective. Thank you so much to both of you for your time, for your work, for your wisdom. Randy, please keep writing because folks want to read it. Namrata, please keep informing me of the amazing things that Kokila is doing so that I can help promote them because I'm all about it. And um, I look forward to seeing you both again soon, hopefully. It's lovely talking to you both. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Brian. Thank you so much. Thank you.